You're listening ad-free with Wondery Plus. When people talk about Gilbert Shikli, they often bring up someone else. A historical comparison that I heard from some of his targets, from lawyers and judges in court, even from his co-conspirators. Victor Lustig was an early 20th century con man. Count Victor Lustig, they called him. Or just the Count. In the annals of legendary scammers, you'd be hard-pressed to find many more famous than Lustig. There's Charles Ponzi, of course, who benefited from having the whole scam named after him. More recently, there's Bernie Madoff. In pure dollar amounts, he may never be topped, stealing 17-some billion dollars. But then, Madoff was really just running back Charles Ponzi's scheme. Lustig's certainly up there, though, especially when it comes to innovators. He's a perennial favorite of TV documentaries and listicles of infamous hustlers. The most reliable account of Lustig's crimes comes from a 1962 book by a former U.S. Secret Service agent named James Johnson, who tracked Lustig for years. Lustig reportedly had more than 40 known aliases, spoke half a dozen languages. He once scammed Al Capone, but then returned the money. He was arrested 47 times in the U.S. without being convicted until Johnson finally nailed him on the 48th. He was sent to Alcatraz and died a prisoner. But the reason Gilbert Shickley is so often compared to Lustig isn't any of that. It's because of Lustig's most famous job. In 1925, the story goes, Lustig was in Paris when he read an editorial about the Eiffel Tower and how much it was costing to maintain. The tower was built for the 1889 World's Fair, but it wasn't all that popular in France. Critics called it an eyesore. Keeping it up was a drain on the federal treasury. The editorial gave Lustig an idea he'd contact iron salvage companies, convince them the tower was being dismantled, and pre-sell them the scrap metal. To carry out the scheme, Lustig and an accomplice first stole and copied letterhead for the French Ministry of Post and Telegraphs. Then they wrote letters to the five biggest scrap metal dealers in the country, describing an important project that could only be discussed in person. It required, quote, complete secrecy. Sound familiar? All five dealers accepted the invitation, arriving at a luxurious suite Lustig and his partner had rented at a Paris hotel. The accomplice, by the way, was named Dapper Dan Collins, which is about as 1920s hustler as it gets. Lustig took on the role of Deputy Director General of the Ministry. He told the metal dealers that the government planned to scrap the Eiffel Tower. They weren't announcing this publicly yet, and in order to expedite the process in secrecy, They wanted to secure a buyer for the scrap, some 7,000 tons of iron. Then, according to James Johnson's account, Lustig walks the party to the tower itself, flashes some fake credentials, and ushers the men up the tower like he's selling a condo. Each one sent a sealed bid a few days later. Lustig chose the bid from a dealer believed to be named André Poisson. Unlike the others, Poisson had risen from nothing to succeed in the business. With a wink and a nudge, Lustig even asked him to pay a bribe on top of the bid to ensure his would win the day. The price of the sale was never really known, but it's often reported as an amount that would translate to hundreds of thousands of dollars today. People compare Lustig and Shickley's scams for obvious reasons. The secret government project, the minister impersonation, the French connection. But to me, it's that both men knew that the perfect mark isn't just someone with money. It's someone confident that they've been chosen for their unique attributes, their accomplishments, their smarts, their discretion. People who have that kind of self-belief 
often also believe they should get to operate in whatever way they choose, that they should get special deals and play by special rules, or no rules at all. When it came time for Poisson to hand over the bribe, he didn't hesitate. I've been around, he said, and I know how things are done. The deeper we got into the Tiger dossier, the more we noticed that a lot of Shikli's targets looked like André Poisson. They had that confidence in their own exceptionalism, and in some cases, the same belief that they should have their own rules. And once you start seeing them that way, the simple narrative of criminals and victims starts to get murky. After the Eiffel Tower con, Lustig quickly fled the country, waiting for it to hit the papers. But Poisson, presumably because he was too embarrassed, never even went to the police. So Lustig returned to Paris, and he did it all again. From Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music, I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is Persona. Episode 6, The Fat One. Like any two sides of a coin, what people know about Aga Khan, that he is a humanitarian, etc., spiritual leader, that is only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is well hidden from the public eye. When it comes to the Aga Khan, Salim Lalani is not a neutral observer. He's an Ismaili Muslim, or was. I was an Aga Khani for most of my life. Uh, that is a follower of His Highness the Aga Khan. He'd been a leader in his local Jamaat Khana, he says. That's what Ismailis call their place of worship. But a decade ago, he'd started having doubts. He says he was struggling financially. He thought, rightly or wrongly, that the Jamaat Khana would support him when he fell on hard times. I began to wonder that, hang on, hang on, I have done everything by the book. I have revered Aga Khan. I have given him a lot of money. So why am I in this kind of a predicament? He recovered, he says, but then he saw the same thing happen to a friend a few years later, around the time the Aga Khan had seemingly become Shikli's most high-profile victim. A friend of mine was going through a financial crisis, and I found out that whatever little income he had, he paid about 20% of that to Aga Khan. So I said to him, why do you have to pay Aga Khan when you are in deep trouble yourself? He stood up from his chair, looked me in the eye, and he said, Salim, I will die. And I will let my family die. But I will not stop paying Aga Khan. Something nagged at Lalani about the juxtaposition of his friend's struggles and the Aga Khan's lifestyle. The family is suffering, and Aga Khan is rolling in luxury. So he says he started voicing these questions about that luxury and what supported it. And when he felt like no one wanted to hear them, 
He left. And now I'm trying to create awareness about the reality that is happening behind the curtains. Walani, who lives in Sydney, Australia, now runs a YouTube channel where he recounts his experiences and criticizes the Aga Khan. Question is, is all that glitters gold? Is it possible that there is another side to Aga Khan? Some of his disputes are theological. And frankly, I'm not remotely qualified to parse them. But some of them involve the Aga Khan's finances and the question of how much of his vast wealth ultimately derives from the contributions of his followers. Lalani, for his part, believes it's a lot. For comparison, I brought up the practice of tithing in the Christian church, that some churches suggest parishioners should donate as much as 10% of their income. I don't think many people pay 10% tithe anymore. Yeah. But let's say they do. In Aga Khani system, the tithe starts at 12.5%. And it goes up to 50%, 50. Wow. And if you don't pay 12.5%, you are heading for the hellfire. As part of his leadership position at the Jamaikana, Lalani says, he helped collect contributions. All the money that is collected is in cash. Mm. If you prefer, you can give gold, you can give precious stones, you can give furniture, you can even make him the beneficiary of your life insurance policy, which they are encouraging proactively, mm. and particularly in America. And where does all that cash go? Point A to point B. Ah. Okay. That is a story on its own. Point A, he says, is the Jamaikana, where the money's collected. Okay. Now, there is a person that basically collects the cash. And then he takes it to a warehouse full of cash. Hmm. Then individuals are appointed who smuggle the money through the borders to go to Aga Khan Swiss Bank in Geneva. The Aga Khan Swiss Bank account, that, he says, is point B. How much of that money ultimately pays for the Aga Khan's yacht or island or planes isn't known. When Bloomberg News raised this issue back in 2005, the Aga Khan said that, quote, I don't think any reasonably educated Western individual would think that all assets of the Vatican belong personally to the Pope. But unlike the Pope, the article observed, quote, the Aga Khan won't say how much he raises from his followers each year or break out how the money's spent. As for the warehouses full of cash, Lalani can't prove they still exist. The last real public airing of the question happened back in the late 80s and early 90s, when the methods of moving collections came under legal scrutiny in Canada and the U.S. It was a giant collection basket for donations from around the world, then transferred to the Aga Khan's account at Lloyd's Bank in Geneva. That's from a CBC documentary on the case. Several people in the organization went to prison. The Aga Khan himself wasn't implicated. But after poking around in the Tiger dossier for months, we started to have some questions about the Aga Khan's finances too. For all the development and humanitarian work the Aga Khan does, he also operates in a strata of the uber-rich that's opaque to most of us. And at one point, in the Tiger dossier, we puzzled over a company called Spring Colt Securities that controlled Swiss bank accounts that had made the transfers to the scammers on behalf of the Aga Khan. The French police seemed puzzled too, at first. They asked the Aga Khan, what's Spring Colt? Who owns it? Spring Colt, it turned out, was an anonymous shell company. And the Aga Khan's people, needing to show that he had in fact lost money to the scammers, 
were in the unusual and awkward position of having to prove his ownership of it. They submitted documents from a law firm in the British Virgin Islands showing that Spring Colt was based there and that, quote, the beneficial owner of this company is His Highness Kareem Aga Khan. The British Virgin Islands happens to be a well-known tax haven, a place to shelter both legal money, like that of the Aga Khan and thousands of other wealthy people, and ill-gotten gains, like that of drug traffickers and despots. The ownership of a British Virgin Islands company like Spring Colt and its Swiss bank accounts, it's not the kind of thing you could even find out publicly, outside of something like the Tiger dossier. Or unless someone leaked a bunch of documents. Like you might recall from a few years back, this big leak called the Panama Papers. Publication of what are being called the Panama Papers this weekend has exposed a worldwide corruption scandal, billions of dollars hidden in offshore companies by some of the richest, most powerful people on the planet. It was a huge trove of information, listing clients of a law firm in Panama. The firm specialized in setting up offshore shells for the super rich to hide their money. There were similar document leaks, more recently, called the Paradise Papers and the Pandora Papers. And the Aga Khan? Well, companies connected to or controlled by him appear in two of the leaks. He had one shell company in the Isle of Man just for registering yachts. He'd used a number of other offshore entities to purchase his island in the Bahamas. And one of the directors of one of those companies was the Aga Khan's right-hand man, the same guy in the Tiger dossier who had detected the Ladrian scam. Some of these companies actually turned up in the media a few years ago during a political scandal in Canada. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's family vacation to the Aga Khan's private island has now come under the scanner. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has known the Aga Khan since Trudeau was a boy. In 2017, Trudeau was found to have violated conflict of interest laws after accepting a free trip to the Aga Khan's island. How could it not have occurred to you that that might not have been okay? No. Uh, the fact is, we work... Uh, mm, the, uh, sorry, let me just try to reorder, reorder the thoughts. A year before the trip, the Aga Khan Foundation had received $50 million in funding from the Canadian government. Five years before that, the Aga Khan's finances came up during a French political scandal, too. In the corruption trial of Nicolas Sarkozy, the former president of France, it emerged that Sarkozy had used his own powers to grant the Aga Khan a complete tax exemption. Then Sarkozy had personally intervened to help him negotiate his divorce. So it is very possible that the heads of governments, they're fooling their own public. Like, they are giving tax breaks to Aga Khan, and the people of France are paying through their noses. As Lalani framed it to us, there was something outrageous to him about that contrast. Between the Aga Khan's luxury and influence and secrecy, and the everyday experience of someone like Lalani. His Highness the Aga Khan didn't want to speak to us about any of this. Not about being a victim in the faux Ladrian affair, or about his humanitarian work, or his offshore companies, or the Panama Papers. We approached Spring Colt's lawyer for comment outside of a hearing on the Ladrian case in Paris, and he said the Aga Khan had never wished to comment on the case, and he couldn't either. We made repeated requests to the Aga Khan Development Network and other Aga Khan-funded entities, and directly to the Aga Khan's assistant and his right-hand man. Finally, a spokesperson responded that, quote, as with our colleagues, we respectfully decline. One former high-level employee I talked to, who didn't want to be named, told me that, quote, there really isn't much point in contacting them. They probably regard it as a quite embarrassing incident, meaning the fact that he'd fallen for the Ladrian scam. If they'd considered our request at all, this person suggested, it was only to pass it around the organization and make sure everyone knew not to cooperate. 
As for Lilani, when he left the faith and started publicly criticizing the Aga Khan, he became a pariah in his former community. Apart from a few friends and uh, maybe a couple of uh, family members. But the community, they don't have anything to do with us anymore. Mm. Your wife, too, because of her association with you, or she also left the church? Yeah, association with me. Uh. In the beginning, she was not with me. She didn't agree with me at all. She was still an Aga Khani follower. Despite that, the community left her. Mm. How can you stay with Salim? You must divorce him. It is very hard. The organization hasn't been happy about Lalani's videos either. Lalani says they sent him a cease and desist letter and warned him he was putting his smileys in danger with his criticisms. He calls it intimidation. Do you remember when you first heard that this scam of the fake uh, defense minister of France had taken place and involved the Aga Khan? Oh, yes. Uh, yes, I, I remember reading it in the newspaper and I was so happy that uh, somebody scammed the scamster himself. As I said, he's not a neutral observer. Did it surprise you that there, I mean, it's over $10 million in that scam. Is that a significant amount of money to him? No, it is pocket change. Wow. It's basically like getting scammed out of $20 and someone on the street for, for an ordinary person. Oh, I would, I would make it a penny or pence. You call it pence in America? <laughs> uh, no, we call it pennies here. A penny. Yeah, penny. It's a penny. Talking to Lilani reminded me something David Atiash wrote in his book about his time running cons with Gilbert Shikli. You might remember Atiash was Shikli's offshore accounts expert, the guy who helped him launder the money they made running the president's scam, and that he died of a heart attack hours before we were set to interview him in Tel Aviv. In his book, Atiash called the world of offshore banking a perfumed sanctuary where fiduciaries very discreetly manage the most important fortunes in the world via networks of front companies, foundations, associations, trusts. It was never completely clean, he wrote. You could never escape corruption. It turned out that's the world that a lot of Shikli's targets existed in, too. Not that they themselves were necessarily doing anything illegal. I mean, some of them were. There was the billionaire art dealer who'd seen through the scam. Guy Wildenstein risks 10 years in prison. His trial begins Monday. He was standing trial in France for a 500 million euro tax fraud for the third time. A trial that would probably never have taken place if the women of his family hadn't testified against him. There was the head of the largest conglomerate in Algeria who'd served prison time for tax and banking fraud. In African news, Algeria's richest man, Isad Rebrab, walked free on time, served early on Wednesday after a court sentenced him to six months for tax, banking and custom offenses. And the banker and former political appointee who'd stood trial for corruption during the Sarkozy administration. Il ne peut pas exercer de fonction dont il a eu la tutelle ou la responsabilité ou le contrôle ou la surveillance ou donner des avis. But there were more subtle forms of corruption too. Because when you want to protect a fortune from tax collectors or prying eyes or both, you do it by operating outside the rules that the rest of us follow, in places where nobody asks questions. I started to imagine a wall of empty post office boxes in a nondescript building in the British Virgin Islands, or maybe Hong Kong, each one representing an offshore shell company. And there are the scammers, 
side by side with their victims, set up by the same lawyers willing to look the other way, banking at the same unregulated banks, everyone's secrets locked behind the same doors. As we comb through the Tiger dossier, we could see the French police dutifully cataloging all the targets of the scam. From the cops' perspective, it didn't matter if these people's money was dirty or where they hid it. It only mattered that they were potential victims who might lead them to Shikli. But as the investigation entered its second year, they didn't seem to be making a lot of progress. It's not that they had nothing to go on. They had recorded the scammers' calls to at least three marks. They had dozens of bank and phone and email records which produced that many more names, most of which were useless dead ends. They had better luck with the suspects who'd been arrested in Poland, Rouget, who'd been sent to set up the bogus account, and Zawadzki, who'd been directing him from Paris. Under questioning, Zawadzki revealed that he'd been laundering money for a French-Israeli known to be involved in president frauds. That man had a bigger boss, he said, someone he knew only as Le Gros, the fat one. The police then set about trying to locate Legros. He, too, was supposedly French-Israeli, with brown hair. Maybe he was Shikli's new money man, his new David Atiash. That pursuit led to interrogations like this one, transcribed in the Tiger dossier. Question. It seems that one of the sponsors of this business is called the Fat One. Who do you know goes by that name? Answer. Everyone gets called the Fat One. Question. Can you detail all the nicknames your entourage calls you? Answer. They call me Baloo sometimes. Among themselves. People call me the fat one. Question. Are you called Big Potato? Answer. No. I don't know anyone who calls me that. The police didn't seem to be getting any closer to connecting the crimes to Shikli. And while they were down the rabbit hole looking for the fat one, the scammers were about to nail their biggest mark yet. Actually, out of the French right now, he's uh, he will be back uh, this afternoon, late. What you're hearing is from a set of recordings that we spent nearly a year trying to get our hands on. Uh, I, I already spoke to him about the letter that you, that you, you wanted since Friday. There were tapes from the scammer's biggest haul, nearly $50 million. And not only that, but we could see from the dossier that they were at least partly in English. Recordings on which the less French adept among us could truly hear the subtleties of the scammer at work. For months, we were stiff-armed at every turn. Nope, no way, not a chance. Until suddenly, we asked the right person, and it was, what? These recordings of Anand Kurach, one of the richest men in Turkey? Talking with a fake Ladrian and his fake assistant? After handing over nearly $50 million to the scammers? Sure, here you go. Yes, now, now, my friend, my, yes, I understand very well. There is the possibility, or you find uh, somebody else who is paying two million four ninety, or I am sending this money with some delay. That's Karach. What he's talking about in this moment is, when is he going to get reimbursed by the French government for the money he's been giving them? That's the topic of a lot of these recordings. I gave you millions to rescue hostages. You said you'd pay me back. When? How? We'll get back to the recordings in a minute. But first, a little background on Kurach. 
So Inan Karaj is part of a very wealthy family in Turkey called the Koch family. Marve Tahirolu works at an NGO in Washington called the Project on Middle East Democracy. She's the coordinator of the Turkey program, focusing on human rights there. Karaj and the family he married into, she says, are the oldest of old money. He's a son-in-law. This family is a very long-rooted, let me say, like old family, one of the most established families of Turkey. And they have been wealthy for decades, really, since the beginning of the Republic. I think they are number one or or the second uh, wealthiest family in the country. For years, Kuroc was an executive and then chairman of the board at Coach Holding, Turkey's largest company. Coach Holding does and sells pretty much everything— Oil and gas, automobiles, consumer goods, banking, insurance. The company estimates that its $40 billion in annual revenue is responsible for 8% of Turkey's entire GDP. Kuroc also started his own car company. So you can imagine he's done quite well for himself. Actually, he didn't even need to. He comes from a wealthy family and married into another. This particular family is really the, I would say, the most decent one. It's never really been involved in any kind of corruption or scandal. They're huge philanthropists. And Kuroc is involved in one of the biggest soccer clubs in Turkey, Galatasaray. So they're one of these families that, even though they are super wealthy and own so much of Turkey, they are really revered among the public because of their contributions to the arts, education, theater, all of that. Tyra Olu likes Kuroc. You could probably tell. Or at least, she thinks of him as one of the better billionaires. But as you can probably guess at this point, even the better billionaire shows up in the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers as the owner of offshore companies in places like the British Virgin Islands. He's also prominent enough with enough political connections that you'll find Turkish pundits yelling about him on TV. Karaj is also a big promoter of French language and culture in Turkey. The French government even awarded him one of its highest decorations, the Commander of the Legion of Honor. This is unfortunate. As you know, I signed already the, all my order to the bank. The first call to Kiroch's office from Le Drian came in late November 2016. It was the same story. Two journalists taken hostage by ISIS. The minister wants to borrow Kiroch's money for ransom. The problem, Mr. Kiroch, the problem, Mr. Kiroch, is that the money won't come to you if you do not do this. Yes, first. I know. I know if that. The money is a it is against the law. The yes, I, I know the story. You tell me, and I believe that. Strangely, even though the scammers have been using the Ladrion mask for at least six months, they didn't request a video call. Instead, they gained Kiroch's trust by mentioning that they'd spoken to another prominent Turkish business person, Gulur Sabanchi. So Kiroch's office called Sabanchi and asked, had she heard from Ladrion about this whole hostage situation? Yes, she said, she had. In fact, she knew Ladrion personally. She'd even dined with him once in Paris. There was no need to be suspicious. The only reason she hadn't given Ladrion money to help with the hostages, she said, was because she didn't control her company's bank accounts. Karaj initially spoke directly with Ladrion, the fake Ladrion. That's the part of the story where I can't believe he fell for it. But when you're that wealthy, I think you're 
always connected to these kinds of governments uh, abroad. Um, so I'm sure it was part of the, I want to feel important and I want to maintain my relationship with the French government. But most of the arrangements around moving money happened with Adrian's chief of staff, fake chief of staff, Bertrand Gautier. The transfer orders all came from Gautier and by email, from an address not at the Defense Department, but at diplomats.com. The scammers use this a lot, and it always cracked me up. The idea that diplomats all around the world might use something called diplomats.com as their email service. Anyway, Kurach paid the orders as they arrived. First for $1.9 million, then $7.5 million, then $3.9 million. Now the scammers told Kurach that ISIS, in addition to the two journalists, had taken 10 French soldiers hostage. They needed more. 4.6 million, then 3.9. Kurach asked what he would be reimbursed, and they put him on the phone with a man who claimed to be head of the Bank of France. There was a delay, the banker said, but everything would be repaid. 8.5 million, 1.1 million, 7.9 million, 8 million. In total, Kurach had just been taken for $47 million. It had been one month since the first call. old man. Honestly, my reaction was I just felt so sorry for him and was also pleased that he wanted to, you know, help the French against ISIS, which is, you know, more than the Turkish government could say at the time. It had all been so easy, really. But now, Karaj claimed to be out of liquid funds. To access other accounts, he contacted his financial advisor, who contacted his lawyer, who told Karaj immediately that he'd been scammed. They went to the bank to try to reverse the transfers. It was too late. On the afternoon of December 31st, while Karach was arranging a New Year's Eve party, the lawyer went to his house and begged him to call the French ambassador. Karach refused. Then, at 1 a.m. that night, a terrorist affiliated with ISIS walked into an Istanbul nightclub and opened fire, killing 39 people and wounding 80. Something about the attack broke the spell on Karach. The next morning, he agreed to call the ambassador. And then he started taping the scam calls, which kept coming. Many of the recordings are just Gautier, the fake chief of staff of the fake minister, politely checking in with Karach's assistant. Hello. Yes, hi, good afternoon, Mr. Karach. Yes. Uh, Mr. Karach is available. Please. No, not now. Uh, he will be on, on the office maybe in half an hour. Uh, again, he no, went okay. to the hospital. Karach had a friend in the hospital to check what's going on, and then uh, come back to the office. Okay, if you okay, call me okay. half an hour or around 4 o'clock, okay? Okay, perfect. I will thank call you at 4 o'clock. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. The calls are collegial, business-like in their persistence. There's something so satisfying about listening to these tapes, the way both sides are so invested in their roles. You get a real sense of the fake Gautier's natural acting chops even as he fails to realize that there are now two players on the stage. Hello, sorry. Yes, Mr. Ashley, why are you running? <laughs> yes, I was away, far away from the telephone, so I came in oh. running. When Kurach gets on the line, he's helpful, sympathetic. Hello. He tells Gautier he's reached his limit. It sounds real, like a man still under the spell. Now, uh, I have uh, another problem. Tin now is almost 
45 million dollars. I am almost in the limit, and they say, look and try to find the possibility, the other possibility. Don't send. Karach will go see his banker in person. His assistant says, and sort it all out. So, Mr. Kiyash is in the plane already. Yes. Okay, and uh, he's landing at four o'clock, four p.m. Correct? Yes, around that. Yes. Okay, he's going to Geneva. Yes. Yes. Okay, and do you know, maybe by chance, do you know uh, which bank he's going to use over there? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't no. have an idea yet. But uh, I'm sure he will call me from Geneva. Geneva, home to Karach's Swiss bank account. A nice touch. He never went, though. In the last of the calls, you can hear Gautier's frustration building. The sound of a scammer waking up to the fact that he's the one being strung along. Hello. Yes, Mrs. Gautier. <laughs> yes, Mr. Gautier. No news. Any news? No news, Any I'm news. sorry. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm not understanding exactly what's going on. Because he left, he said he's going to take care of it. I'm supposed to call yes, in the morning to, to have some news. Maybe he's is still to trying to find a solution, maybe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, Gautier stopped calling. $47 million would have to suffice. Kurach wouldn't speak to us. Neither would his lawyer, at least on the record. But there's this detailed description in the dossier that caught my eye. At the end of the lawyer's account to the police, he remembered one more stray fact. There was this moment, late in the game, when Kurach expresses concerns to the scammers about his reimbursement from the Bank of France. Gautier offers to come to Istanbul to straighten things out. Kurach even books a hotel room for him. But at the last minute, Gautier cancels. He tells Karach his daughter is sick with cancer. He'll have to come after the new year. It was a few days after this that Karach realized he was being scammed. I often wonder if it was all just a bluff. It probably was. But then, maybe there was a part of the scammer that thought, let's take this one more turn and show up in person. The ultimate con. We'll probably never know. What we do know is that while Karach was getting scammed... And while French investigators were tracking the fat one, Joubert Shikli was living large in Ashdod, Israel, out of reach of the French authorities. They suspect he's the fake Ladrian, and they still have an international warrant out for his arrest, for the president's scam from years ago. But as long as he doesn't leave the country, they can't get him. What they don't know is that Shikli's getting restless. And in May of 2017, he presents an Israeli passport in the name Hai Shelley and catches a flight to Milan, From there, he does something either poetic or idiotic, depending on how you look at it. He drives across the border to the French Riviera, just for a day, to put my feet on French soil, he would later say, and drink a coffee. It was an absurd risk, but Chickley was about to take an even bigger one, flashing the same passport and boarding a flight to Ukraine. This time, he wasn't going for coffee. He wasn't taunting the French police showing he could turn up at their doorstep without them knowing. This time, he was going to work, and his famous luck was about to run out. August 2017, an unmarked police car pulls over three men traveling on a highway just outside of Kyiv. In a video of the scene, taken by Ukrainian authorities, you can see the driver get out and open the trunk, and the cops look in, inspecting it. 
Then suddenly, a gray minivan appears and screeches to a halt in front of the stopped car. A handful of armed agents jump out and instantly pull a man out of the passenger's side. He's wearing a black baseball cap, a gray t-shirt, and carrying a shoulder bag. He's handsome. He puts up no resistance as they shove him against the car. Gilbert Shickley had nowhere left to run. The other passenger is a brown-haired French-Israeli citizen named Antony Lazarevich. He's shorter and squatter than Shickley. Ukrainian cops throw him to the ground roughly and handcuff him. The driver gets put to the ground too, and then the video ends. The French police soon get word that Shikli's been arrested in Ukraine. After more than a decade, they finally have him cornered. Gilbert Chicli, l'escroc français en fuite pour ses arnaques au faux président, était arrêté en Ukraine vendredi et une audience. And the French couldn't even really take credit for it. When Shikli had boarded a plane out of Israel to Kyiv, the Israelis had alerted the Ukrainians to his impending arrival. But now, the French set about arranging his extradition, both to serve out the original sentence that he'd skipped out on and to face new charges in the Ladrian scam. If the situation looked bad, Shikli was about to make it worse. A month later, a video surfaces of him and Lazarevich in a Ukrainian jail cell. Well, in this video, you can see Gilbert Shikli and Anthony Lazarevich in a cell in Ukraine. Carol Olivia Montano is an attorney who would later represent Lazarevich. And they are drinking buha, explaining that, well, bad things about the French judicial system. For the record, they said they were drinking vodka, not buka. And what Shikli said about the French judicial system, on camera, in a toast, was this. Lazarevich, to our exit, Shikli, and to our millions, Lazarevich, right, lots of good things. Shikli, screw the French judicial system. Fuck you, I won't go there. And even if I go there, I'll fuck you anyway. They clink their glasses. Lazarevich, to Shikli. Right, thank you. To the camera. I'll fuck you too. The video seemed intended for friends, or maybe social media. But instead, someone leaked it to French television, along with a second one. This one features Shikli bragging about their having a refrigerator delivered to store steaks. And saying that uh, kosher meat is coming. We are bosses and we remain bosses, Shikli says. Uh, so for people in France, it was like, oh, Gilbert, uh, he manages to buy uh, these kind of things in jail. But honestly, it's just because Ukraine jail are shit and they don't have it already in the cell and you have to buy it. So it's not something crazy or luxurious. But Gilbert is like that, you know. He likes to make you think that uh, what is around him is always exceptional. For the French police, it was a kind of deja vu. There they were again in the Tiger dossier, transcribing a video of Shikli taunting them from abroad. The arrests and Shikli's prison videos set in motion an endgame the investigators had imagined way back at the beginning. Namely, that there was only one man who could have masterminded the scheme, and his name was Gilbert Shikli. Now things moved quickly. The Ukrainian police confiscated a rose gold iPhone off Shikli, and they got two phones from Lazarevich. One of them they could never unlock. But some of what they found on his other phone was damning. Searches related to masks for other prominent French politicians, including the former president, Francois Hollande, 
the current one, Emmanuel Macron, and perennial far-right presidential candidate, Marine Le Pen. WhatsApp messages with a man identified only as Giovanni with an Italian phone number. In those, Lazarevich complains to Giovanni that a mask they have isn't any good. It's a disaster, Giovanni agrees. Not at all what we wanted. They talk about getting a new one. They talk about materials and molds. And then there's a photo of a man sitting at a desk in their Kiev hotel, wearing a mask made to resemble Prince Albert of Monaco. Lazarevich would later claim that the phone wasn't his. Chickley said they'd been in Ukraine on a pilgrimage to visit the grave of a famous rabbi who died 200 years ago. They didn't want it to admit what was obvious, which is the fact that they went to Ukraine to do this kind of fraud with the identity of Prince Albert in Monaco. Mm-hmm. And this, if you read the case, it's, you cannot say anything else. It's true. Remember, this is a defense lawyer saying this. Someone on their side. Hmm. Were they saying, these weren't our phones? These are someone else's phones? Yes. Yeah, but you could hear their voice. I mean, you had voice notes. The Ukrainian authorities never actually found the Prince Albert mask. Shikli would later claim that someone had cleaned out the evidence in their hotel room before the cops had searched it. But it didn't matter. When the French investigators got a hold of the phones, they had evidence that would help them make their case. And they had a Shikli accomplice in Lazarevich thrown in, someone who they'd never even known about. Lazarevich is no one in the crime organization. I mean, no one knows Antony Lazarevich. His name came up just because he was with Gilbert in Ukraine. And if he had not been arrested with Gilbert, he would never have go through all this mm-hmm. because there was not really any evidence against him. But now, the French police went back to Sebastian Zawadzki, the Polish guy who talked about Le Gros, and he confirmed it. Lazarevich was the fat one. Some people were saying, oh, the fat guy, uh, okay, uh, how many... Uh, ah, fat guy, brown hair, and Jewish. Okay, I guess we have a lot of uh, guys like that. Plus, we had guys like that, that we had their pictures. So we had other suspects, actually. After all that work and all those leads, the French had really just lucked out. Shikli had slipped up, left Israel, and fallen right into their laps with a phone full of evidence. The only question now was, would it be enough to convict him? Or would Shikli find yet another way to slip through their grasp? After three months in a prison in Kiev, Shikli and Lazarevich were extradited back to France. Shikli fought it, of course, to no avail. Now they began the long wait until trial. At least this time, the French were smart enough not to let Shikli out on bail. Instead, they bugged their cells in the visiting rooms, looking to catch them talking about the big scores or mentioning other suspects. Is it common for them to put microphones in the cells? And do the criminals know this or they don't know this? It's the first time that I see this in a financial case because the cell is the only place where you can feel safe in the prison and where you can have a little privacy. She'd heard of bugging in terrorist cases, she said. But in this kind of case, which is basically a financial case, it's the first time that we have something like that. And for us, it was crazy to discover this in the case. It was about to get even crazier when Gilbert Shickley finally went to trial and faced the public. How surprised were you at the verdict? Oh my God. 
and he was completely crazy. He shouted. He was more or less fascinating. Okay, last question. That means there's someone out there with 50 to 70 million euros. Do you know who this is? <laughs> That's next time on Persona. Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Parrott, with additional help on this episode from Emmanuel Hapsis. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting from Uzge Sebsiji and David Iverson. Translation by Leela Vajranath. Fact-checking by Adeline Sear and Danya Suleiman. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. And Fair Use Council provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown at Donaldson Califf. We couldn't have made this episode without the foundational research and writing on Victor Lustig in the book The Man Who Sold the Eiffel Tower by James Johnson with Floyd Miller. Also, the modern research of Jeff Maish in the book Handsome Devil and Maria Konnikova in The Confidence Game. The Organized Crime and Reporting Project and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists have both been essential resources. Special thanks, too, to Vincent Monnier, the French magazine Loves. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen, and our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Ren. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. <laughs>